Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Ilona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. You guys, I like um, that one. That's I good. know. <laughs> I'm like, I, as a journalist, I want to be writing this down. There's like five articles happening. I will be um, here all day. <laughs> no, this, this, this is awesome, and I just want to uh, contextualize a little bit of what, about what you said. Um, 2011 is what you were referencing, and that's one of the very few vintages we have in California that were exceptionally challenging in a cooler, rainy during harvest seasons, all kinds of events of that nature. And I think maybe the one prior to that that was kind of um, difficult was 98, so we don't get them very often. But 2011, vineyard work was crucial. You can make all kinds of arguments that it's crucial over here, but in this case, it was, you know, without a doubt, if the vineyard work was correct, the wines came out, you know, maybe not what you wanted to drink immediately, but exceptionally age-worthy. And as we're finding out now, I mean, I know I've tasted quite a few 2011s. It's a phenomenal vintage. The unfortunate thing that happens is that when the press writes about the negative characteristics of the vintage, that's what gets to the consumer. And that's what they base their purchasing decision on. And I know that this wonderful people that I'm sitting next to now will tell you that 2011 is a very worthwhile vintage because oh, they put in so much effort and made sure that everything was handled correctly and really have outdone themselves in that sense because it, it required a lot that year. Yeah, and, and, and I think, you know, if, if anyone and people do ask, you know, what's the... You know, what vintage are you perhaps the proudest of? That, that's go. the one that I choose. I mean, anybody could have done 2018. Good point. There you go. Yeah. Um, maybe not anyone. Maybe not anyone. <laughs> but, but, yeah, 20, 2011, you know, both from the vineyard perspective, the perspective of the people managing the vineyards, certainly from the perspective of the farm workers. I mean, the, the guys just worked incredibly hard during harvest. I mean, it was amazing. Um, and then the winemakers who were able to alter their winemaking techniques and alter their expectations to craft something really wonderful from from fruit that just was not what they were accustomed to dealing with. Yeah, absolutely. So you have a mandate, you need to go out and buy a bottle of 2011. And <laughs> please write to us. They're drinking yeah. beautifully right now. I, yeah. I, um, yeah. There's a lot of deals to be had for sure. Um, yeah. Right. You know, it's tricky that you bring in that role of the media and, and you know, it's tough when you see after a couple inches of rain, you see mm -hmm. front page of the paper, a, a, a guy with a giant, you know, rotten cluster. I mean, that, right. that doesn't do anybody any good. But yeah. what, what I like, uh, what I like about uh, how we went through that is um, you did see a lot of uh, producers out there, you know, choose to withhold um, some of their some of the product they weren't proud of. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, more and more as I look at some of these challenging uh, vintages that, that we have, if there's um, issues that we have, uh, you you get to a point now where. We're all making big decisions about, you know, what what wine should we let out with our brands, um, and you do see a lot of people uh, holding stuff back, you know. So so whether that's uh, damaged fruit, whether that's something that just doesn't make the cut, that's more common than the fire is 2017. Yeah, same exactly. some years ago, we, we had people having to make it to the next business milestone, and and you know, there's just really great products coming out today. 
um, from from really everybody, and, and I think that's a that's been a shift that I've been um, seeing quite a bit, um, and, and I think it's a great thing for us. You're like a this is like a Jedi mind trick. This is such a natural segue into my next question. Thank you. Um, so you basically said we're now drinking better than ever. That's a fact because everyone is so invested in the final product, and everyone who puts their name on the label and everyone who's behind it from the very inception is so cognizant of the quality. So we're all benefiting from that. So dialing it back to the basics, when we're, we're not grape growing really, we're wine growing. <laughs> so what is the difference with respect to planting a vineyard and managing it? Is it, are the principles the same whether you're planting a vineyard to grow premium fruit or just you know something in the lower category than that? Yeah, you know that that purpose-built planting, I think, is is a lot of that driver as well as as people started making those choices. Um, but I think there's a huge educational component as well. Uh-huh. As I look at uh, even myself through my career, as I look at um, things that uh, that Mike and I do through the Napa Valley Grape Growers, uh, from an education standpoint, we're we're reaching out to uh, a lot of people that work in this business. Um, and in a way, kind of shortcutting uh, some of the problems. So this collective uh, uh, sort of hive mind of viticulturists that we all work with and we talk to, uh, we all interface with, um, uh, we, we can shortcut some of these problems. And, mm-hmm. I, and I think that's a big driver uh, in this wine quality, sort of upping our wine quality. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even the low end, um, those wines to me seem to be getting a lot better. Mm-hmm. And and the high ends are obviously getting a lot better always. And, and that's, a, uh, that's a perpetual thing that we should always be looking at in our vineyards. But, um, uh, I, I liken it to just the people involved uh, more than anything. So we have our farm worker, uh, 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 you know, involvement in, in these, um, in how we do our operations in the vineyard uh, from having our winemakers, you know, coming out and doing these things with us. Uh, how do we leave? How do we look at this? Having everybody involved on that uh, decision uh, matrix that we try to go through and make these wines uh, really gets even the lower tiered wines even better quality. Um, and you know, I, I don't, I don't know a way to categorize that really, but I see it happening um, mm-hmm. in, in not just people that I work with, but uh, other wines that I really enjoy from from people in our industry. Very cool. Anything else you guys want to add to that? Yeah, I, I think you know part of it, <clears throat> and and I think the reason we're getting to to the point that Garrett's talking about is a sense of professionalism all the way through the industry mm-hmm. and you know it, it certainly speaks to to farm worker education and having everybody feel that they've got a stake in what they're doing and understanding that they do have an impact mm-hmm. on the final product you know that everything you know like the broadest definition you could give probably to terroir is everybody who touches it. Exactly. You know, That's so, so the guy who human prunes, yeah. the guy who suckers, um, the guy who sprays yeah. has an impact on that finished wine. Mm-hmm. And and I think a big part of what a lot of us are, are doing is making sure that the people doing the work understand mm-hmm. that it is impactful. Mm-hmm. You know, that you're not just showing up and, um, and getting a paycheck and going home. Yeah. You know, that, that you're part of, of a process that, that means a lot to people. Wow. Yeah, I, I think that's, uh, <laughs> that's a really good point. You know, the, 
the sorry we're not we just laughing about the next question oh yeah right. not me I hope no no not at all I'm just it's, it's, it's a really good point. We, we uh, on some of our highest end uh, vineyards, Mike. I mean, we, we we spend you know we'll have like 400, 450 hours per acre of mm -hmm. of, of intervention. Crazy uh, amount of time. Wow. And and you and you think about all the hands that touch uh, our vines at that point in time. Mm -hmm. um, that's that's basically you know there's 20 or 30 unique times that we could screw it up you know or right. we could make it even better. Well, every yeah. pass through there is impactful, right? Absolutely, and, and and having having this educational piece, um, having everybody sort of raise the the bar uh, on on everyone working in the vineyard and everybody understanding the final outcome, I think yeah. is making they're making better wines, mm -hmm. uh, and and I think that's um, that's something that the consumer can see directly, you know, with. Um, uh, with all the brands coming out of Napa or, or otherwise, uh, it's, it's happening all over the world, which is great. Mm -hmm. Rob, anything before I... I, I, think, I think the one thing I'd say in, in, in top-end or premium wine growing versus something less than that or something different from that, Yeah. Um, I think sometimes we, going back to thinking, having that, that end goal in mind, that sometimes we are not out to create the most strongest and healthiest vine, uh -huh. the most uh, academically or scientifically viable vine species. Um, there are individual sufferings or challenges that grapevines can endure, not just within their lifetime, but genetically to, to, to work towards wine quality as well. And I think sometimes that I think that's a difference. Going back to our first question, what does it take to plant a vineyard? What are the thoughts yeah. going into that? And then what does it mean, you know, at that premium levels? Sometimes we're willing to endure some of those weaknesses, inherent problems for things specific to their influence mm -hmm. on ultimate wine quality. Mm -hmm. So cool. that's a, a curveball for us sometimes. Well, thank you. So I, I really want to try this Pinot. Can we? Yeah, so we were told, by the way, <laughs> first we were told, drink the damn wine. So, you guys, slackers, um, and then the question, great question, by the way, thank you. What would your second career be? You're so knowledgeable, but what would you be doing if you weren't doing viticulture? So, we'll, we'll start with Rob. Oh, me, okay. Um, Just like that. Yeah, here spot. I think I would be you, probably a high school teacher. Too. I think I'd probably teach somewhere. Um, actually, teaching high school English was my first project professional aspiration mm -hmm. and uh, I don't regret doing what I do but I think maybe if I were to strike up a second career and actually go backwards and go back to what I first thought I wanted to do. Cool. How about you Mike? Um, I'd probably be a veterinarian um, and, and I really stumbled into the to the viticulture mm -hmm. farming thing. I was studiously avoiding anything having to do with science all the way through my school career. Um, but um, in retrospect, yeah, that, that would be my second career. And um, the second part of the question, would, what would you be doing if you weren't doing this? It would probably be raising bloodhounds. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. So degree in history, works with vines, loves animals. Mm -hmm. Uh, boy, I don't know. Uh, I, I actually really couldn't imagine being in a different uh, industry. You know, there's, um, I'm not dodging the question here, but uh, but basically, um, I think about everything that we do. Uh, there's not a single repeatable thing that we do in the, in the vineyard. Um, 
every single year. So, so every week, every week is different. Every month is different. Uh, the weather is different. We're responding to so many different things. Uh, having so many things thrown at you uh, during a season uh, is is really um, is really an exciting thing. So, I'd have to be in a career that had that same uh, level of pressure in a way, uh, or responding to pressure. I'm not quite sure what that would be, but um, I feel like it would be a craftsman of some sort. Um, you know, it, it just feels good to make something. You know, uh, put your heart and soul into into the products uh, that, that you make, whatever it is. Um, I can see it being like a brewing beer, or something like that. But, cool. but there, I would still have to, like, have, to, have to like grow everything. You know, um, I'd, I'd hate to buy it somewhere. Um, but, but there's a there's so much of an authenticity of, of all the people that we work with here. I think there's a lot of people that probably wouldn't choose a second career. I mean, this is a good right. one. This is, you know, vineyards is, and wine is a great career to get into as your second career. Um, and we do actually see a lot of that. Uh, people that make the shift from other other jobs that may, uh, you know, in my opinion, be pretty darn boring. Um, and then we make it to the wine business. So um, it's a very welcoming uh, industry, for sure. Thank you. And just to show everyone how inclusive we are, we have Napa Sonoma, Anderson Valley represented. We're drinking Oregon Pinot Noir. So this is BY's 2014 vintage Willamette Valley. It's wonderful. And yes, is it mm -hmm. delicious? It's really good. All right. So, Before we yes. get to your next one, and one word that, that Garrett just used, and I think it's really important mm -hmm. in terms of understanding what, what we do is respond. Mm -hmm. you know, we, we spend a gazillion hours and a lot of money planning and anticipating and in some senses you know developing a, a very false sense of control mm -hmm. over what's going to happen yeah and you know it, it's like in any given growing season your plans change the first night the frost alarm goes off. Oh, right, right. Um, and you're just reacting constantly. And, and I think it's really important um, to realize that and to not get bent out of shape over, well, that's not what's supposed to happen. I mean, we have no control over what's supposed to happen. And, and people who are good at this are people who are really good at reacting. You know, and have have contingency plans, have the resources to react. Um, you know, there's kind of plan A in in any given season. You probably wind up somewhere around M or N um, mm -hmm. as you go mm -hmm. through the season. Yeah, we need yeah. a certain level of paranoia to mm -hmm. create that. <laughs> that plan. Right. I mean, people people tell me people tell me, hey, like you know, don't be so negative. Um, and I tell them, you know, kind of that. That old movie, like you want me on that wall, like you want me freaked out all the time <laughs> about what might happen because that's what potentially in the right moment that's what's going to get us through whatever. So we talked about the responsibilities and all the bosses that you have. Mother Nature is the ultimate one, mm -hmm. and that's what you just described so well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we we use that saying all the time. Mother Nature always bats last. Yeah, right. um, she's undefeated. And <laughs> pretty much, yeah, yeah, and, and that's you know that's just working within that framework. Um, you know, we're all used to it uh, now, but it, it can be intimidating for some people that have to have, you know, a perfectly laid out plan that you can't deviate from. Right. Um, having that plan is incredibly important, but being able to make these course corrections all through the season, that's, that's really what makes this job fun. Right. Um, and, and I think is uh, what, what brings a lot of people to, uh, it, you know, to this business. Even in the winemaking side, that happens quite a bit. We're dealing with a living 
uh, product um, that, that has a has a lifespan, you know, and a time scale uh, involved. And so, if we're not making these very careful tweaks during that entire process, uh, we certainly can't change the outcome. And uh, that that makes it a fun career. Um, and I think, uh, you know, that's why we see a lot of people in this business. But it also, I think, keeps you exceptionally humble. Mm-hmm. You're reminded so often of what matters and what you can't control. You know, my wife taught me why I do this for a living. <laughs> Speaking of humble. Yes, there <laughs> you humble. Go. But, but my wife taught me why I do this for a living, and she said, you're a total control freak. <laughs> and I said, I get that. I got it. Hey, I'll cop to it. But, uh, so being a total control freak in every other aspect of life, but then having a trade, a profession, a, 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 a life focus in a lot of ways, up against something that you can't control, right? Mm-hmm. Mother Nature. Someone that's mm-hmm. always going to bat last, that is always going to beat you if she wants to, whatever. Yeah. It is a, a balancing force, I guess, especially for those of us who uh, grip a little tighter on everything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, yeah, here we're tasting a Willamette Valley Pinot. Like, you know, I, I always um, commiserate with some of our friends in other growing areas, you know, where we're just getting done with a very long rainy season. But, you know, folks in Willamette have to deal with this all summer long, right. you know, and so. Um, you know, it's just a different uh, tool set that you have in other places, but uh, but Mother Nature does bat last, and, and I think it keeps us on our toes. I like that analogy about the control thing. I see some of that, too. You know, I guess I've had it. It's not mine. You try to. She came up with it, but I <laughs> Best you can, yeah. So speaking of vineyard lessons and not being in control, Rob, what were some of the most valuable and maybe the most painful lessons that you learned in your viticultural journey? I don't know, painful. I'll, I'll say valuable. Right? Okay, good. Um, <laughs> I was, I was hoping for can be painful, but <laughs> dramatic at this point. <laughs> no, I think, I think there's a couple broad-reaching big lessons for me. I mean, one would be nothing happens in a vacuum. Nothing mm-hmm. happens in that vineyard or, or we're not going to do anything in that vineyard that lives and breathes solely in that moment, in that second, on its own. Um, a snapshot is not a full picture, right? So no matter what we see going on out there, no matter what we're planning to do or how we're reacting to it or or anything else, that all needs to be done with uh, with regard for what happened before and hopefully some thought for what it's gonna mean to the future. And I don't I don't mean to make that totally philosophical, you know, big picture, but even Yes you do even, and we love you for it. No, no, I mean truthfully like <laughs> Even nuts and bolts of it, like right there in the vintage, uh, pass through that vintage. Yes, continuum whether, again, right? Whether, whether it yeah. be kind of the, you know, the water we're putting on or not, yeah, um, yeah. other nutritional aspects or inputs, just to pass through the vineyard, manipulating canopy, whatever, whatever that is that we're doing in that one instance, has to be done, kind of with the thought of the past and the future, because it's all tied together that way, and nothing happens, you know, in one second. I think there's. I used to work with a guy who used to talk about unintended consequences often. And I think that has some elements of the same thing that, you know, even if you're if you're trying to address one thing, remember when you're addressing that one thing, what your actions may be altering on other ends of it. So past, future kind of thing. Um, the other biggest lesson I think I've ever learned is is uh, don't try and play God all the time. Um, we have science, we have technology, it's 2019, there's there's a million ways for us to impart our will on what's going on out there, and and that's probably honestly why we all get paid to go to work every day is to impart that will to much degree. But uh, with all of our lessons, with all of our science, with all of our quantitative metrics, and all of those things, I think it's it's been a, a lesson for me to 
to understand when to bow out, when to get out of the way, when to intentionally not puppeteer everything. Um, not as an excuse to, <laughs> to, to relieve our duty in a lot of ways. Um, but I think it's, it's important to let vintage speak, let play speak, know when to not completely and utterly try and play God on everything. Um, you know, it's, it's a natural product. They're living and breathing that, you know, everything about it is, it is part of the world. It's, it's, uh, it's foolhardy for us to think that we should or we even could, back to always losing, ultimately, play, play God all the time. So I think it's been a lesson for me to know when to almost take a step back. So I get attached again to terms that unfortunately have quickly become the marketing terms like low intervention, but there's no such thing as uniform approach. You're talking about critical thinking, you're talking about thoughtful evaluation of what's in front of you and making decisions accordingly. And that's true for life in general as well as wine life. So there's there's a lot to think about in what you just shared. Um, what I heard you guys all talk about at various points is almost the paternal relationship with the vineyard, the steward, the shepherd. Mike, what is your relationship like with the vines that you tend to? Um, I think I think at its root, <laughs> at, at, the, at the bottom of it, um, it's based on perspective. Um, if you will, you know, respect for the land, respect for the vines, and similarly to what Rob just said, realizing who's really calling the shots. Um, I think the, that relationship is is largely based on listening. Um, it's not based on you know, some goofy media person at one point asked me, you know, do you talk to the vines? <laughs> and, and, you know, just a, watching, a, <laughs> a very, very knee-jerk response was, no, I listen. <laughs> it's only a problem when they talk back. <laughs> right. Um, you know, like your kids. Your right? um, voices out there, that's a totally different conversation. But, but really, it's... Um, the, the relationship needs to be a respectful one. The relationship needs to recognize it, that it's about the land and the vines and it's not about you. Um, you know, I, I think at best, when we're at our best as, as farmers and managers, we're facilitating what the land does best. We're, we're not imposing our will on it in any way, shape, or form. We're understanding what it does best, and we're facilitating that. Very well put. I heard somebody use the word shepherd once. Like mm -hmm. Shepherd. We're shepherding through. Yeah. I mean, at, at the same time, it, I think my relationship with those vineyards is oddly intimate in ways. Mm -hmm. um, intimate and private. Not private because it couldn't be shared, but, but private that it... My relationship with those vineyards is only mine. I don't think anyone else can have it. You know, I mean, these guys could walk into one of my vineyards and see and understand, you know, a million things that are going on there, right? Yeah. But if I were to walk in, I would probably pick up on nuances and subtleties maybe that, that would not 
you know, demonstrate themselves or, or come out to, to either of you or anybody else instantly, right? It, in the same way that, uh, you know, if you walked in this room and I, I was sitting here crying and you could see my, my head in my hands and those things, you'd immediately know I was upset, right? Mm -hmm. But if I was just sitting in the corner, you know, a dear friend of mine or, or a member of my family would be able to know by the look on my face if I was slightly upset or the tone of my voice or my mm -hmm. body language if I was somewhat excited. That, that's what I mean by intimate, right? Those subtleties, yeah. those nuances, I think those things come out, you know, only to, uh, only to the folks that are there every day. I think that's right. I think that's absolutely right. Um, you guys, this is poetry. <laughs> wow. I'm just sitting I, here. I don't have a lot to add other than, <laughs> other than this, um, sometimes these relationships uh, get strained quite a bit, you know, uh -huh. so it's yeah. like, why is this going south? <laughs> <laughs> right. So you, you certainly learn uh, patience out of that mm -hmm. uh, relationship for sure. But uh, yeah, you know, it's very interesting. I mean, the, I was just trying to go through in my head how many actual vines we work with, you know, so if I work with 3,500 acres, that's that's a lot of vines. Um, that's a lot of individual vines, and I, and I'd have to say that um, I, I, you know, you want to spend as much time in as many areas of the vineyard as you can at many different points of the year, um, but it, but in some cases it's physically impossible, and so, um, you know, I, I think creating an opportunity to be a, to spend more time in your vineyard is very important. Um, see more of those individual vines. There's there's a lot of people that always work for us uh, that will touch the same vine. Uh, you know, 20 times during the year, and um, I always like to think about what's that relationship like. Is it a is that a nurturing relationship between a lot of the guys that are actually carrying out the work? Um, you know, it's one thing for me to design a protocol about what we should do, but having people actually um, carry that out—that's a different uh, relationship. Right. So, I, I like this one. Uh, next time we do this, I want to um, get deeper into um, uh, other people's responses to that. I love that. Yep. Maybe oddly codependent or interdependent. <laughs> Maybe interdependence is a better word. But uh. um, so let's talk about the messaging. Uh, you know, if there's wrong information out there, usually, you know, there's media or marketing to blame. It's not you guys. I think it's clear to everybody who's watching that the truth, the origin of it, is right here. It's in front of you. So um, tell us about some of the most common misconceptions that unfortunately consumers get stuck with. Oh boy, dispelling myths. <laughs> <laughs> Is an episode of Mythbusters, maybe something like that. It's that was true. Right? Can say that? No, don't come after us. Um, <laughs> anyway, I think the uh, yeah, it's very interesting. You know, you you, you wonder you wonder how uh, how things get sort of baked into people's perception about um, about what we do as as you know viticulturists, but also in wines. And you know, the one that always sticks out to me quite a bit is is um, a little bit of a lack of understanding around yield. You know, oftentimes people in our own industry are, it's gotta be the really good one. This tons per acre, or it's gonna mm -hmm. be the worst one you've ever had. And like there's a magic number that- There's a magic number for everything else, right? <laughs> and and, and, and we're, we're just as guilty of it, you know? Uh, people in the field, um, we're, we're, we're trying to uh, distill this like, you know, 20, 30, 40 years of experience into like one manageable thing and say, well, what is it? You know, does that have to be three tons an acre for this cab? Um, you know, and so I think a lot of people, you know, use that yield uh, question as probably the it's probably the most in your face uh, mm -hmm. of like misconceptions that we can have uh, absolutely brilliant wines that come from what we would otherwise consider higher yielding vineyards, um, and in some cases that's the right. Uh, 
the right uh, tool for us is to actually increase the yield. You can you can undercrop and take away from quality as well. Right? I mean, that, that's an aspect that rarely gets right. Taken up. Right. Absolutely. So conversely, you know, we can be way undercropped uh, uh, and have you know very acute problems with our wine quality that that the consumer notices and. Um, you know, and so going in, into um, this business with a lot of dogma uh, about any anything can be actually really a problem. Um, and, and I think the best people that do it uh, in our business, you know, walk into every situation with a very open mind. Um, you know, you can start to paint yourself into a corner when when you have these dogmatic thoughts about the exact right way to farm or the exact. You know, this is how we've always done it. Um, my canopy always needs to look just like this, or I need to always do this work at this time. Uh, some of that dogma can be uh, very dangerous, um, and you know, and, and I think we see it across the world as well um, show up. And, and that's just—I think we're good as humans trying to try to, you know, consolidate this data and say what is it telling me. Uh, but there's so many things going on in a vineyard; uh, it's just really impossible to to glean that type of data out of that. Um, and, and that's uh, that's one of them. You guys have some other ones. I don't want to take this question. No, I think. You know, but, I, but I think what it, you know, what you're talking about, leads to you know is is what's for me the kind of the overriding principle in in the, in the whole farming deal is balance, right? Um, and and that's what we're looking for in in any given vine. There's a magic, there's a magic range. There's a, there's a range. Yeah. yeah. And, and, yeah. and it's not, it's not numerical and it's not data driven and it's not quantifiable. Um, and it could be different in every vintage too, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it could be very different, you know, in every vintage from vine to vine. You know, let alone block to block or ranch to ranch, um, and I think you know the, that that kind of dogma is is really disruptive when when people who are pulling the strings and and making the decisions start to believe it. Right. Yeah. Good point. That's where it's scary. Um, you know, if it's just people talking about it and writing about it. Um, you know, no offense to the marketing folks, but you know, you get really tired of reading about super low yields being directly related to wine quality. Mm -hmm. There is simply no relationship there. Right, right. Um, there may be, mm -hmm. but there may not be. Yeah. And it's not a foregone conclusion. Yeah. No, no, thing. And and we try to take it to the level with with our guys in the field. Of thinking about each individual vine, Absolutely. you know, not when you're walking into this block, this is what you're going to do. Right. It's when you're walking up to that vine, figure it out, what understand what it needs. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I think you know that the whole thing about balance is, is I mean, it, it flows all the way through to the, to the wine. Right. So it's not just to the farming, but mm -hmm. it, but it's to the it's to the wine, and it hopefully you know winds up being you know in the consumer's understanding of, mm -hmm. of what they're drinking. Mm -hmm. well, both of you use the word dogma, right? Right. Yeah. I, I have I have long preached the uh, the idea of of make decisions, don't follow rules. Mm -hmm. right? Kind of the same kind of thing, mm -hmm. and that you know there's. 
there's responsibility in that. <laughs> but uh, I, as I tell people, that's that's a responsibility I'm okay with, and uh, that's the responsibility that I try and back to your vine by vine. Mm -hmm. I want every one of my guys out there to be okay with, you know, to have that responsibility to make mm -hmm. decisions. I mean, we have to set protocols. We have to set, you know, certain metrics to be able to, to function. But when it comes down to looking at a grapevine and knowing what is best for that grapevine for its intended purpose and use, those have to be decisions. Those can't be rules. Yeah, sometimes these things get, um, get you know, they become alive uh, because it's a way to distinguish your wine against somebody else's wine. Um, you know, and it, they, these, these marketing um, tools a little bit tend to perpetuate, um, you know, the, the myths in the vineyard. Um, you know, switching gears a little bit on that one, I, I always like to take on the hard questions sometimes, and I, and I hear a lot of detractors of our industry saying, oh, you know, um, grapes are just a monocrop and they're, you know, we, we don't have, oh my gosh, it's not a sustainable vineyard and things like that. Um, you know, and it's and I just, I think about that all the time and I say, you know, we, we grow our vines on up to 20 different rootstocks. They're, they're completely different species uh, that we put out in the field. They're all underground. We put, we put a, a variety on the top of it. We have six months out of the year, we have uh, a permanent cover crop, you know, growing in some cases all year long. And other cases, um, you know, we have, we have uh, essentially a, what is a rye crop or a, or a bell bean crop. We, we actually, we're doing a lot of things with our land. And, and I think the, um, there's some misconceptions always about, you know, oh, it's just farming and mm -hmm. oh, it's just, just this. And I think there's a way to bridge that gap. You know, I think it comes through education. Um, I, I tend to do a lot of work with my clients sometimes uh, uh, with uh, the tasting room staff. Um, and I think that's a great way to, to head off the first point of contact um, about maybe saying some things that, are, that could be false or just a little bit misleading uh, in, in that conversation. Uh, and I think we all owe it to ourselves to, to try to be as honest as we can about what we do in a vineyard because it's a great story to tell. Um, but, uh, you know, we also think about who's actually out there marketing that message for us. And, mm -hmm. and sometimes it can be the tasting room person, it can be an employee that works there. Um, but I, I look at the educational opportunity to talk to these folks and, and get some talking points out there that are meaningful uh, as being the way to shortcut that. So really, by beware, you guys that are watching, the responsibility is on you. If you just accept absolutist, dogmatic statements, then that's all you'll have to work with. But if you truly want to understand, if you have this burning desire to get to the bottom of you know why things are, then you go directly to the source and most importantly ask a lot of questions. Don't mm -hmm. just accept something. You might get some lower information or some misguided opinion that's well-intentioned. That's not going to help you in the end. Right. Um, the conclusion of this interview can be found in the next podcast, already available for your download. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Pal Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson.